Time to Build Green in Central and Southeast Europe. Interview with IRENA's Renewable Roadmaps team, Episode 11. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Luis Gennaro and Sean Collins of the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA. In late 2020, the agency published a study on the renewable energy prospects for Central and Southeastern Europe energy connectivity. Yes, a long title. The study was sponsored by the European Commission and breaks down how the region can go green. The report breaks the myth about the cost and viability of a sustainable energy system. The cost is lower and renewables work in the next 10 years. A little background on our guest. Luis Gennaro is a program officer working on renewable energy roadmaps at ARENA. Before joining ARENA, he worked for five years at Ecofeast. Sean Collins holds a PhD from the University College Cork and is an associate program officer on renewable energy roadmaps. The region is very heterogeneous. That is the Southeast Europe. The income and the sizes of the system are very different from Austria and Italy to Kosovo and Bulgaria. Nonetheless, the countries each face the same challenge on security of supply and high use of fossil fuel. For example, 90% of the oil is imported and over 70% of natural gas is also, leading to security of supply concerns. We delve into the future scenarios in this interview, the 2030 reference model, how things are going now, and also the projected 2030 remap. This is what the future can be with the use of renewables. This is not a fossil-free future scenario, but the advantageous use of renewables does shine through the model. We touch on the importance of finance for renewables and risk for investors, and the cost of capital and how this impacts a new project. The higher cost of capital in the region could slow down the deployment of renewables. My takeaway from this report in our discussion with Luis and Sean is the result of the models are achievable and practical for the region. Their model is a moderate one of what can be done by 2030, so just in 10 years. Even here, it provides policymakers and even citizens of the region an ability to perceive a different future which more holistically embraces a cleaner future with cleaner air and at lower at a lower cost than what is the current trajectory. Thank you for joining this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. If you find this episode useful, please send it forward on social media. And now for our discussion. John Collins and uh, Luis Janeiro, uh, thank you for, for joining the podcast today. Hello. Thanks for having us. And uh-huh. also, I want to mention Vavra Alexic, uh, who's doing her PhD here at CEU. Hello, Vavra. Hello, hello. <laughs> okay, she's the inquisitive expert. We'll say we'll we'll say it that way. So, um, just to start off, then uh, both Sean and Luis. Luis, I'm saying your name right. Yes, it's correct. You, you okay. Uh, both both work for the International Renewable Energy Agency, and they've come out with a report titled Renewable Energy Prospects for Central and Southeastern Europe, Energy Connectivity. Uh, it came out in 2020, so quite recently. But uh, this is a long, um, for me, uh, personal interest uh, ever since I, I basically moved uh, to Budapest professionally in 2006. I've been following things in the in the southeast of Europe and been fortunate enough to travel around and meet a lot of people. And so I'm, I'm really interested in this report coming out with how to transition the region, which has a really uh, interesting both energy mix, political mix and potential 
around renewable energy. So this is one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on. And but before we get into the the details of the report in the region, I just wanted to get a get a sense both from you, Louise, and Sean about why about your jobs and and how did you how did you end up in your jobs and why why is energy as a whole kind of interesting and maybe i'll start with louise uh first okay thank you thank you for having us um um i guess in my case the the interest for energy started very early at i would say school or even high school times uh this will probably <laughs> give you some sense of my age but at that point the discussion was not so much about uh, climate change. It was more about, let's say, the scarcity of oil. Uh, we were running out of oil. We have 40 years left, etc. So that, uh, being an idealistic kid, uh, sounded like a very fascinating challenge to, to address. Um, I'm an engineer by background, and so going to engineering school also uh, helped me to look at it from a more technical perspective. And when you actually look at the numbers, it's even more challenging, particularly with you look at it 20 years ago when renewables were really marginal technologies and very expensive. Uh, so again, that increases the challenge and I started very soon bothering my friends about renewables and I've been bothering them for the past 20 years. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's a bit my background. I worked, before working in energy, I worked five years in the steel industry, something completely unrelated. And as soon as I had a chance, I, I changed. Uh, I worked for a year as a researcher on sustainable supply chains, and then I worked five years as a consultant on energy policy. And I've been now with Arena since 2017, so almost four years now. Wow. But I, I like that beginning with the steel industry. I mean, how did that experience inform what you later went on to do and what you're doing now? Uh, not much. It's just that uh, life takes you in uh, very different directions. Uh, and you don't always have the opportunities, uh, let's say, from a job perspective, uh, where you're born. You need to move sometimes. So I moved out of Spain and I found a job in the in the, uh, the sector I wanted uh, in the Netherlands, not in, not in Spain. But uh, that job was, uh, I started uh, with it actually saying, okay, I'm going to be there for an internship for six months while I look for something that I really like. And then it just turned out that I found a really nice group of people and I was very happy there and I worked there for almost uh, for well, in, it, there were two companies, but in one of them, three and a half years. Uh -huh. But but the things that you learned working in the steel industry, does that kind of help you understand? Like then you went moved on to the supply chains. Uh, did that um, have or no? I'm just assuming things here that are not. No, uh, well, I guess all professional experience is useful, and uh, you learn to do analysis, and that uh, shows you how to look at certain things in a certain way, and all. all baggage is useful but uh, not necessarily directly okay okay i used to be a bartender so that's why i'd like to do a podcast because i learned to talk to people <laughs> so it's also a very important one actually yes 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 although i have to say i don't do this podcast with alcohol so <laughs> bartending is much easier <laughs> a lot more fun. So, uh, Sean, I was wondering maybe about your background and, and, and your how did you get into modeling, in fact, modeling of economic things? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, th th thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, for me, I kind of really got into energy as such as a field when I was finishing secondary school and having to contemplate what to do with my life. Um, so, uh, frightening thought. <laughs> And I, I, I was considering uh, like 
because I, I could have done a range of things because I have a broad range of interests. I was considering liberal arts to business to governments to various other things. But I, I struck on engineering and energy engineering was my degree. Uh, because it's actually quite a cross-cutting topic that bisects many of my other interests. So, yeah, that, you know, so I could work on many of the key challenges facing the world. And it seems like a, a very interesting developing area, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. That, that's what kind of drew me to it. Um, and then to before coming to IRENA, so I, I finished my degree and then I went straight into a PhD in energy modeling and and, and how they can be used for energy policy in uh, University College Cork in Ireland, which is where I did my bachelor's degree. So um, I, I, I that's where I, I got into the weeds of developing uh, optimization models for the European power system to show how it can integrate huge amounts of uh, variable renewable power into 2030. And what, what impacts that has on costs, how the system works, what kind of policies are needed to take us there, which uh, and how much action is kind of needed. Um, and as part of that, I, I worked with Irina during during that PhD, and then I finished the PhD, and then I came back, and that now I did a lot of their, I did the modeling underpinning the, the Centre in Southeast Europe report. Okay, so some of this is in your PhD? Uh, the methodology, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. And uh, and uh, how do you? Um, my my question then for you is, uh, as a modeler working with with these and and especially the scenarios going forward, there's when you're doing your like when I'm right for example, let me provide my perspective. How when I'm writing and and I think about policymakers, how they can use this. How do you? How do you, I, I kind of can phrase my words or you know write in a certain way. And when you're doing the, the modeling work, how do you kind of envision how your work is being used or could be used in the policy context? Yeah, uh, the, the, the big thing to, to understand about models is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it's understanding how they can be useful is the key thing. Um, they help us understand different potential pathways and different futures. And you need to communicate the, the assumptions that go into them well. Um, and that, so that you understand the results that, that that come out of them, and being clear with this um, is is absolutely clear um, and important, you know. Uh, because uh, and that, that that's what helps. That's how you communicate best with policymakers by making clear what you're actually analysing and how the, the the inputs are limited, but also how they're valuable uh, in terms of the outputs that you can understand. Uh, how you can get there in future. Mm-hmm. So, so you did say all models are wrong. Yes. <laughs> I, no, no model is an oracle that will that will tell you what the world will be in twenty thirty. But it, it it will help you understand the, the problems with different pathways or challenges and indeed opportunities in actually reaching the that future that you're looking at. Okay, um, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it really, really informs your 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 thinking and the options that mm-hmm. are out there. And of course, by the time it gets translated into policy, there's politics involved, and so there's oh, a lot yeah. of <laughs> yeah. it's a world it's a world away from from what it started with. <laughs> yeah, so so we can't say no. Your models are right. Yeah. Just those stupid politicians need to do it. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's move move on to the onto the report. Um, 
actually, uh, maybe just some some basic opening uh, things. Uh, in, and the report is um, condensed down to uh, CESEC region. So the Southeastern European what, energy countries. Can you can you help me and, and kind of uh, identify <laughs> the countries that you're looking at? Sure. Uh, so the acronym stands for Central uh, and South European Connectivity. Actually, Central and South European Energy Connectivity. And it is a... It is an initiative of uh, nine European member states and the European Union that got together in uh, 2015 to discuss how to to integrate uh, markets and how to integrate infrastructure. Then these countries were joined um, by a number of contracting parties of the energy community. Um, And uh, maybe for your audience that are not familiar with the energy community, these are countries that have not joined the EU yet, but uh, they have committed to align their regulations with uh, with the European Union, with the prospect at some point of becoming part of the EU. Maybe I should mention which countries are in, in the whole yeah. list. Even if it's a long list, so that people have sort of a picture of uh, which region we are talking about. So the, the EU member states are Austria, Bulgaria, Croatia, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. And then the, the contracting parties of the energy community are Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia, the Republic of Moldova, Serbia, and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So it is basically Southeast Europe, but uh, with a couple of Central European countries included in the in the mix. Um, yeah, so that's a bit the, the picture of the, the region. And then let's say the objectives of the initiative originally were to look at gas and how to, let's say, improve security of supply uh, and integrate markets. Uh, but then in, in 2017, the, the scope of the initiative changed and it was expanded to also include uh, electricity markets, uh, energy efficiency and renewables. And since then, uh, IRENA has been involved in those meetings and we have been providing input in terms of what is the potential for renewables, in terms of uh, how to design policies to accelerate renewables adoption, et cetera. And it was in the context of this initiative that the European Commission asked us to develop the, the report that uh, triggered your interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And wh- what are the, some of the, the, the challenges? Well, what's the present, uh, I would say, energy mix of the region and why? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as you can tell from the list of countries that I gave you, this is a very heterogeneous region. Uh, both from a socioeconomic perspective and also from an energy systems perspective. So if you look at the, let's say, the income per capita of the richest country in the region is about one order of magnitude higher than the, the poorest country in the region. And also the sizes of the systems are completely different. So if you compare Italy with uh, Kosovo, for instance, uh, the, the size is, uh, is there's a big difference, right? Um, but at the same time, all these countries face one common challenge, which is security of supply and a strong reliance on, on fossil fuels. Uh, so about 60% of the supply in the region comes from oil and gas. And uh, oil is 90%, uh, 90% imported and natural gas is 75% imported. So basically half of, more than half of the energy system is imported and that creates a very serious um, uh, issue of security of supply or, or concern. And we have seen disturbances of security of supply in the past in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a shared concern. And then if you look at the systems uh, 
in the in the countries are uh, you need to look at sectors differently, right? So if you look at transport sector, is an oil story. Ninety percent of the supply, ninety-five percent of the supply is oil. Uh, if you look at heat, it's more of a gas story, although coal plays still an important role, particularly in industry. Uh, biomass also plays an important role in the region. So if you look at buildings, uh, so residential and commercial buildings, uh, about a quarter of the heat for residential heating actually is biomass. So it's very important uh, carrier in the region, unfortunately, not always in a sustainable way. Yeah, can we just stop right there? I, I love how you're breaking all this down. And I, maybe just to reflect on the biomass, biomass in this region, I'm just drawing on from experience, but basically means people chopping down trees and burning it in a, in a, in a wood stove or something. Is that how we're carrying well, That's not what we advocate for, that's for sure. Um, unfortunately, that's, that, those unsustainable practices happen in some countries. Uh, but let's say the unsustainability comes from the how uh, bioenergy is, is uh, harvested and in which conditions, but also um, how the bioenergy is used. So we, unfortunately, we still have some countries in which you uh, or in which they are still using um, traditional cookstoves, and a traditional cookstove has an efficiency of maybe ten percent or something. So it's wasting wow. a lot of bioenergy. Uh, um, in the in the process, um, so that's something that we need to improve. Yeah, that needs to be improved, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. but sorry, sorry, on on these statistics, because like in sorry, there's a trick that they did in Hungary where they wanted to increase the amount of renewables in the statistics. So before the biomass, which was not including household firewood, basically was not included in the statistics. And, and then like overnight, they decided to include that. And then the amount of renewable energy went up and was included in it. So, so the here, here, your biomass doesn't include, or it does include the like household use of, of wood. Yeah. Uh, so we are uh, a small group of analysts working from Bonn and we cannot go to every country and do a biomass survey. So this is a very complex issue that uh, countries are actually solving. There's some issues with the statistics indeed in the, in the region that are trying to be solved. Actually, the Energy Community Secretariat has been working on that. Um, we can only use what countries report to Eurostat. And in some countries, this is more accurate than in others, as you say. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's just, I don't, it's biomass overall with the biomass, but, but then that's a, it's kind of interesting that I don't call it a disconnect, but exactly the, the quality of the data, right. That you have for, for any, any modeling work and then how that is, is transposed into that. Maybe I asked Sean for a second and how, how do you, how, do, how is the quality of data or maybe, maybe that's a political question, but also, I mean, there's a lot here, but but how how is the quality of data that you're working with, and is it a bit of a challenge? The difference between the countries for for, for the power for the power system model, and the, the it, it's based actually on there's actually quite many good resources actually, um, but uh, across across the whole European Union because it's a 39 country model we're using. So so the CSEC model sits within. Uh, is attached is an extension of the European model uh, that was de- earlier developed. Um, so the, a lot of the model relies on Eurostat data uh, and standard units because if, if you wanted to represent the, the thousands of units in, in, in the full 39 country region, uh, 
you, you would have a hard time trying to see what's going on in the model, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but generally it's, it's quite, it, 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 uh, and then in terms of resources, uh, like wind and solar and hydro, uh, we have we, we we actually have pretty highly resolved profiles at hourly resolution in that regard, uh, and that, that's actually improving uh, because there are more and more resources coming online all the time uh, for this. Uh-huh. So we could move from the, your models are wrong to your models are right very soon. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Louise, I just wanted to then go back to kind of where you're going with the, with the, the, the split in the energy mix from transportation and highly oil dependent. Uh, and then you also mentioned coal, coal for being used for heating. And I would guess you were moving on to maybe power production because a huge yeah, I, mm-hmm. Yes, I was, I was moving there. So I was, I was almost there with the, the picture of the whole system. Um, yeah, so in heat is a story of gas, sometimes coal and biomass. And in the power sector, um, again, it's a very diverse sector. So you have countries like Albania that sources uh, most of the energy from hydro um, and other countries that still rely very heavily on coal generation. Um, generally, if you look at the whole region, uh, roughly half of the energy that is uh, of the power that is produced comes from coal and gas. Uh, and then one fifth comes from nuclear in countries like Hungary, Slovakia, Slovenia, Slovenia still have uh, nuclear. And then another fifth is hydro. Most of it was built uh, decades ago. And uh, and then the rest, that last 10% is wind and solar that still are very small today, but are growing fast. Yeah. So that gives you a sort of a picture of how the mix of the region is. Mm-hmm. And, and you just mentioned, uh, for example, the hydro built decades ago. This would also go for nuclear power as well. So in a sense, uh, and, and the growing energy need of the region as well, like it's a r- really good time now to look at renewable energy and what can be done in the region. Is that right? Because they're going through this transition that that has to occur, but also the, the, the there's aging of infrastructure that needs to be replaced. Yes. yes. So we looked into that and actually... Um, of course, investing in renewables will require heavy investments from countries. Um, but uh, the conclusion we get from the analysis is that uh, it doesn't make much of a difference because countries need to replace their generation assets anyways. And um, so it, it's a very important moment because if you invest back into coal or, or uh, fossil assets in general, you are really risking as a country uh, ending up with stranded assets. So it's an it's an it's an opportunity to to modernize your system uh, and do not uh, invest in something that uh, will. It's not only that uh, it could be stranded because of climate constraints, but it's just uh, not going to be competitive because mm-hmm. renewables becoming much cheaper. Ah, uh-huh. okay, okay. So so maybe maybe. So you, what you're saying then is just out of context of a stranded asset, just on, on a finance, uh, I don't know, perspective, that that renewables are 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 or going to be more competitive than fossil fuels. Yes. So it, we have seen. Um, well, probably we will touch on this uh, later, but we have seen the cost reductions for renewables very impressive. I'm uh, citing from the back of my head now, but I believe it's 89% cost reduction for solar PV in the last 10 years and 40% for wind power. Uh, so, and what we see in the markets now is that um, the renewables are the cheapest form of new generation. 
in most conditions. Um, and they are sometimes even cheaper than just the marginal running cost of existing fossil plants. So it's sometimes cheaper to deploy a new solar plant than to pay for the, the fuel and the maintenance and the reinvestment in, uh, in pollution control systems for a coal plant. Wow. So, um, so that's why I, I'm saying that it's, it's an important moment for taking these type of decisions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's super, uh, super important. Then I think maybe, um, I'm looking at my questions right now. Um, but, but it goes, it goes along with that. And I was just maybe, maybe we could turn to the, um, I'm just looking at figure two. This is the breakdown of gross final renewable energy consumption. And here you have kind of 2015, the existence, uh, the energy mix in 2015, the 2030 reference. And then 2030 remap uh, scenarios there, and and uh, maybe Sean, you could maybe walk us through what is the reference scenario, and I'm uh, under consideration there, and, and what's the difference between the 2030 remap there? Yeah, so so the the, the, the reference scenario is where current policies take us uh, out to 2030, and then we at at Irina, then we, we look at renewable energy options, so. How can uh, how uh, and then use those to substitute the the the, the, the planned options out to 2030. So and uh, for the remap case, we look at those renewable energy options and uh, substitute the the plans in the reference case, and then we arrive at our remap case for for, for 2030 with the increased renewable energy uptake. So a more a more ambitiously renewable scenario. Versus planned would be the key differences between the remap and the the reference scenario. And and the the reference scenario, I, I kind of want to go out with what Louise was was mentioning the change. And I'm looking here, and uh, I should see it better. But is there like coal and regular fossil fuels in this reference scenario of 2030? Yes, yes, there is. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know the, the I don't remember the numbers from the back of my head, but no, that's yes, okay. <laughs> unfortunately, there is. Uh, also, I don't have the report in front of me, and it's it's been some months since we finished the analysis. But no, there there is there is coal, and there are countries that are still planning to reinvest in coal assets. Yeah, for for example, I think uh, um, Kosovo is that is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. yes. And uh, actually, let some, me some plans to reinvest in several countries. Uh, how realistic they are and whether um, countries will be able to actually find the finance for those projects is a different story. But yes, there are plans still. Uh-huh. And Louise, is this one area you deal with is finance for renewable energy or likely a f- financial alternative? It's not my area of uh, core expertise, but uh, yes, we, uh, we sort of look into that too. Yeah. Uh-huh. And how, how does that look, the area of finance here between exactly what you were talking about kind of maybe the traditional business as usual maybe we build a coal-fired power plant or you know invest some in some fossil fuels or how how does the finance look for actually funding these projects um to be honest i i, I don't feel qualified to talk about let's say how to finance a, a fossil project well i mm-hmm. can maybe i can turn your question around a bit and say what is important for renewables uh, in terms of finance? Um, so um, it's important to understand renewables are capital. Uh, and what do I mean by that? 
when you generate electricity with a fossil asset, if you break down the cost of that generation, uh, you look at one kilowatt hour produced by a gas plant, for instance, you will have to pay a, a fraction of that kilowatt hour cost is um, paying back the initial capital. Another fraction is to pay back the operation and maintenance costs, to pay the personnel, pay the administration of the project, etc. And then you have a big fraction that is the fuel costs. That in a, in a gas plant is typically 30 to 50% of the cost. You don't have that in, uh, in renewables. You don't have fuel costs and the operation and maintenance costs are relatively low. So that means that the, the um, uh, financial viability and the competitiveness of the, of the uh, plant is determined at the time at which you obtain the capital. And that means that the, the cost at which you obtain that capital is also critical. Also, it's important to understand that if you increase one percentage point, the cost at which you obtain that capital, the cost of generation does not go one, uh, up 1%. It goes rather 10%. So the cost of generation is very sensitive to the cost of capital for renewables. So that's what is it, extremely important. Now, what happens in the region, in the CSEC region, or more broadly in Southeast Europe, is that you have higher cost of capital than in other countries. And this is reflecting that, and that this is one of the key barriers for deployment of renewables in the region. And this, what this is reflecting is the risk that investors perceive in investing in, in uh, renewables and investing in renewables in those particular countries. Um, so that's an area where um, governments and regulators have uh, some, some work to do to improve. There's, uh, so there's plenty of risks involved in a project. So you have uh, risk related to the technology, risk related to how you operate in a market, and then you have policy risk and regulatory risk, and that falls entirely in the hands of in the hands of regulators. Uh, so that's one area where the region can work on to to accelerate the transition by having policies that are transparent, uh, policies that um, uh, do not create risks that are unnecessary, um, policies that are stable. So basically, if, if we were to give advice to a regulator, uh, it would be look at the process to develop a project and analyze where there are unnecessary risks that you would not take with your own money. And then if, if, uh, and then change those because that's, that's how, how investors think. So if you look at it from the perspective of the investor, you will accelerate the transition. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, I just want to reflect on because this is, one area where I, in my research I was working on was investor risk in the, in the region. Mainly it was around private, the privatization process of distribution companies or generation companies. And so I see like the risk hasn't gone away, basically. In fact, I, I once used the, the, the word barriers. These are the barriers like for cooperation and things like this. And I, and I was told very explicitly by the funding agency for the report, these are not barriers. These are issues. So they didn't, they didn't want to offend anybody. So, so we have, we have these issues. We have these barriers, uh, for accessing, not just accessing, but, but, um, maybe it goes back to your, your very point, um, that you can explain like 1%, uh, 1% uh, in the, say, interest rate for a loan or something, for a loan, um, translates into 10% higher cost. Can you explain that? Because uh, it has a, a big rule of thumb. It's not exactly like that. but it's, it's, Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but why is that? Why is there an exponential kind of increase in the, then the cost of it? Uh, be... 
is not an, an exponential increase, but it's the nature of, of compound interest, right? Yeah. So if you do a calculation for the levelized cost of, of energy uh, with a solar plant that is financed at the 8%, uh, and you do the same calculations for a solar plant that is financed at four percent. You will have you will roughly reach to a increase in the cost of generation of of about forty percent. Wow. Uh, so that so the, the yeah the the cost of generation is extremely sensitive to the cost of capital in renewables precisely because it's almost all of the costs. Renewables are basically when I say renewables, I'm talking here about solar and wind. Of course, if you have a biomass project, there's also a component of fuel. But in solar and wind, it's pretty much all capital in the beginning. And uh, also important to understand is that the developer or the investor, uh, once they've done the investment, they are trapped in the project. There's nothing they can do about it. When you when you have a, a system that works with fuel, you can at least renegotiate the price of the fuel. You can decide not to operate in certain hours, etc. But uh, with, so, with solar and wind, there's nothing that you can do. They're trapped into the project. So if, there's any change at the later stage in the remuneration of uh, the projects, or in or if uh, the government installs a new tax or something, um, then uh, that exposes your project to non-viability. By the way, this is not an issue only in uh, Southeast Europe. And when you said there's no progress, I think there has been a lot of progress in, in Southeast Europe, and countries are working hard in improving the regulations. Um, there's plenty, unfortunately, there's plenty of examples in Europe where regulations have changed in the middle of the game, and that has destroyed the renewables market for a few years. Because once that happens, then it's very difficult to convince investors to come back to that market. Spain, for example, that there was Spain, a big my country of yeah. origin. Unfortunately, there was for years there was changes in policy that had a, a damaging impact. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. I, I'm, uh, we still have a lot of uh, great, great issues to cover. But, but yeah, this is. I mean, when we ever talk about the viability or the, I, I love this twenty thirty remap vision. Uh, you know, underlining that is the financial kind of risk that these investors, whether it's a state, it could be a state-owned company or usually private investor, and the type of encouragement that's used to bring these private investors into a country is really, really relevant. And, and is, yeah, uh, Spain, United States, uh, France, right? They, they all have their regulatory regimes around these things, which can also, you know, reduce risk. But I would say in the Balkans, it's, it's a much, it's much higher, uh, because of the political, political changes. Um, at least that's my, my, my opinion. Uh, but I want to move to uh, some of the technical areas here, for example, like district heating um, yeah. and the use of biomass in that. How do you, how do you, uh, and maybe I, I open this up either to Sean or to you, Louise. Uh, how, do you, how do you see, because this would really make a difference, I think, uh, maybe district heating uh, in, in, these, in these countries. Uh, how, how important is this within the whole scenario or what kind of difference would this actually make? Uh, shall I give you the first shot, Sean? And then if you have, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so you pointed it, right? So it, it has a big impact for these countries because these two heating systems are very popular in the region. So uh, it's about 13% of the heat uh, that is delivered to uh, buildings and industry comes from these two heating systems. So 
uh, it is a leverage point for the energy transition. Why? Because if you change one districting system, you're changing hundreds or even thousands of buildings in one shot. So it's a very important element to address. Now, you know, distributing systems in the region are a gas story, mostly. It's about two-thirds of the heat that comes from those systems is gas. There's also coal. And what we see is that, um, let's say, from a renewables perspective, there's all options are possible. So you can have a geothermal distri uh, district heating, a solar thermal district heating. You can use heat pumps. You can use multiple technologies. What we So th these technologies have limited the scope of use. So you really have to have the conditions in the place where you have the district heating system to actually uh, make this technologies viable. So you, for instance, for solar thermal, you need to have the surface, you need to have land available in the proximities, etc. And this is not always the case. So of course, we encourage cities to look into these technologies. Um, but one option that works across the board is solid biomass. And actually, if you look at uh, the systems that have been installed so far in Europe, most of the rules uh, in district heating system is solid biomass. So, yeah. Lithuania, I know, is a good example for a country that really had energy security, moved from gas because it was Russian imported gas to, to biomass. And Sean, uh, when, you're, when you're modeling this, uh, how, how does the Southeast look uh, in, in these terms, both for biomass and for thermal solar heating? Yeah, because it, it, it's very important <clears throat> to, to represent this properly in the power system model and to ha have this heating demand constrained on because you, you can't just have them um, like solar PV cannot just come in and replace uh, the hot the hot water from your from your CHP unit. So and, and these uh, because these combined heat and power units, they, they, they produce electricity at the same time. So you can't just ramp it down when you have extra solar or wind or what have you. So it's very important because uh, people wouldn't be very happy if their homes were freezing. So <laughs> it's very important to, 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 to represent this. And we do represent it and have it as, as a constraint in, in the power system model to, just to make, to make sure that the, it's, it, it's realizable. Um, and then that's, that's, that's why we model, you know, to, to, to make sure and show that the system that we are projecting uh, works. Mm -hmm. And and can I ask you more specifically on on the modeling data and how how you do this? Like, um, uh, for example, uh, current currently the case. I have another PhD student, Anna Stolyevskaya, and she's looking at uh, energy poverty in, in Macedonia, also in Austria. And for example, in this area of energy poverty, you know, people only heat with one room, uh, or only only heat one room. How do you, when you're modeling this, do you uh, account for the whole flat being heated or how, how does this, how, how are you yeah, looking at this? Well, well, what we have is we have um, a projection of, of overall heating demand for, for the country and then constrain the model so that it actually is forced to meet that uh, across the year. Um, so, yeah, we, we wouldn't have each house represented, but it, what we have is sufficient um, for our modeling resolution, I think, of it. I think um, this this is where we get all models have specific applications, and we need to be careful. <laughs> but, um, and I, I think this is this such modeling is very good for national scale uh, and international scale to capture those kind of interactions. But if you want to delve down into individual houses, individual rooms, you need uh, you need much more highly resolved modeling, which is just an, an, another step, and then uh, in in the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Good.
so I, I won't go down that rabbit hole too much with you. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, one one area I will look at though is the uh, solar thermal. So uh, and this region, uh, you know, because what I know is only from my personal experience and travel. So uh, like two years ago, I went to Croatia on vacation at Christmas time, and it was very sunny. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm and I know in the summertime it's also very sunny and hot as well. So how did, uh, and this also goes to solar PV technology, how does the region overall maybe look and compare to other regions in, in um, using solar as, as a good energy source? Yeah. Um, I was in Croatia also two years ago, so maybe we were in the same thing. Let's say it's two, two different things and two different applications, right? Solar thermal and uh, solar PV. Uh, let's say starting with solar thermal, it is uh, it is established technology. It's a mature technology, and you have some countries in which, uh, for sure, in CSEC countries or generally in Southeast Europe, it's a competitive technology because the solar resources are very high quality. So, it's, uh, um, why is it not more the more broadly deployed? So you have countries like Cyprus or Greece or Austria, in which is very successful, and others in which there's barely any solar panel. Um, I think it boils down to the fact that, uh, again, it's capital intensity. So you will save fuel for 20, 25 years, but you need to have upfront maybe 2,000, 3,000 euros for a household of four or something like that. That's a, a rule of thumb. Um, and of course, no, not uh, so many people in Europe can spare 2,000 or 3,000 euros like that, and especially not necessarily for clean uh, hot water. That's not a, a life priority for many people. So uh, that's, a, that's a market barrier, so to say, to come back to your 10 market barriers. Yes. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's things that can be done. So for instance, start making uh, building standards or establishing building standards so that uh, when, when the building is put together, already solar thermal supply is considered and the provision of uh, soft loans. So uh, because from a societal perspective, it makes sense that we deploy as much as solar thermal as possible, but it's difficult for the private person to take the decision because of that initial investment, then uh, loans could solve that problem. Uh, and there's other instruments that, that could work. Then solar PV is a different story because then it's, it's about the power sector. And then it's more, uh, again, the region has excellent resource for solar PV. And, uh, and and it's cost effective in the sense that the radiation, the levels of radiation in Southeast Europe are excellent. So um, yeah, it is a matter of uh, we come back to the, the to the discussion on high cost of capital and other barriers to, to deployment in the power sector. It's a power sector discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It all, all comes uh, into play. And Sean, uh, for for the um, sorry, the solar um, intensity of the region for lack of better the the proper term the the region is is quite good in comparison for the solar yeah yeah no no it, it, it's it's very good but indeed the costs the costs of solar of solar pv are, are, are have dropped so substantially that um the the, the resource is no longer such an uh, such a barrier to deployment do you know because it because and in, in in a region like southeast europe central and southeast europe with such a resource, it just becomes more compelling to invest, really, because because the resource is 
so much better and the costs are so much lower than, than many other parts of Europe. Uh, if we're seeing solar coming in in various countries in the north with, with lower solar solar resource, uh, I, I think uh, we, we can we can surely see it has a case in Southeast Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. I'm, I have a poli- I have a political question, and I'm going to turn to Varvara to get you guys off the hook on it. So Varvara, they've they've laid out this beautiful. Uh, and I think you know the answer, but you know you can answer it how you want. But they laid out this very nice scenario uh, of solar and renewables and everything. But but we have a uh, the politics of the region, and I, I ask you, Varvara, uh, just so why 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 what what would be the we have the key word the barriers right? So what are the political barrier barriers to implement some of these suggestions? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that now in my mind, because when, uh, of course, I mean, um, with all due respect of having this uh, modeling and reports and everything, uh, but the thing is that uh, um, this is just one of the reports we already had, and the great, uh, I would say, these political challenges are not, well, um, I would say they they are not... um, yeah, they just, uh, it, it's my, again, it's my feeling, but it's just they don't want to hear the reports. So there, I think there is the great challenge of uh, communicating, for instance, the results you made and uh, all the uh, all the options you put there with the decision maker. So I'm more interested into that part, actually. How do you experience this? If I may now uh, pose one question. Uh how do you see this communication going? And of course, there are many um, small improvements and we can see that, um, for instance, yeah, in Serbia with wind and uh, yeah, with other, uh, with other uh, options, renewables options. However, still, it seems like uh, just the politicians or decision makers don't want to hear the, these results or they're just neglecting them. It's it's my opinion. Do you have the same opinion? <laughs> <laughs> or or you don't have to have an opinion, but yeah, that's um, yeah. I mean, what? How do you see actually this communication from your perspective? Maybe to put it that. Um, I would say um, it's not so much that politicians do not want to hear. I don't have that impression. I think uh, there's also lack of information sometimes. So one one experience that was very surprising to me is that still the perception uh, is there that renewables are not cheap and they're very expensive. And it's just factually incorrect. That's not what is happens in the market. And still we have, uh, so in experiencing meetings that we still have pushback on that. Um, so I think it's a matter of uh, talking and uh, spreading the word and uh, communicating, as you say. And uh, we see movement in the region. So, for instance, uh, recently there was an, a result for an auction in Albania with excellent uh, prices. You know? So there's there's um, there's movement in the region. I think, and I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can I ask you then um, also for the the involvement of the energy community and the EU with this? So they asked you to to come up with this model, uh, and how much? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to be a bit delicate here because I understand you 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 wrote the wrote, wrote the report and this is the report that that has come out. But uh, how much encouragement or um, 
kind of engagement have you seen from the EU uh, and the energy community in working with you and working with the governments on this report? Yeah, it's, um, we worked closely with the European Commission and they funded the, the project. They uh, didn't have anything to say about the content. So basically they just supported our, our work. And uh, with the energy community, we also work very closely. And again, it's a, a similar relationship. They were very supportive in facilitating dialogue and supporting us in getting information, etc. And they provided feedback on the report also, uh, as the European Commission did. But we wrote what we wanted to write. That's, uh, if, yeah. if that's your question, <laughs> that's a very straight Well, no, uh, no, no, it wasn't so much my question, but my que- <laughs> but but I, I think it's important to state that. So I think it's important to state that. But my, my question then is building on Varvara's uh, question, I guess, is uh, going forward, uh, how do you, and maybe, I mean, because usually... I would say as a, in my experience, as a consultant, you write the report and then it's out of your hands. <laughs> so, so, but I don't, I don't want to put you in that position, but I, I'm just, uh, my, my, my question is, is, um, how, how do you, is there, is there like a, what's the next step here with, with the results of the report or what would you like to see, uh, as an international organization that's focused on energy and maybe, maybe even reflecting from other reports that you've published in the past with other regions and other countries, what what is a typical next step after the report is released, and and what kind of movement could you see on the ground? Yeah, um, I think that's a bit beyond, uh, let's say, our area. So both Sean and I are mostly analysts, so that's more higher up there, the hierarchy to decide exactly what are the what are the steps. Um, we are already in discussions with some countries on the follow up activities in supporting and providing feedback on their plans in uh, organizing events to discuss, to bring up, uh, say, discussion broader with investors and with, you know, with uh, a broader community rather than just from an analytic perspective. So there's there's activities that are going on. And of course, uh, outreach, which is very important. Barbara was saying, just continuing the discussion and engagement with countries is, is important. So, yeah, I, I think, and I think it's a fair uh, comment too that you made also about the there's still and I and I hear it as well the the high cost of renewables or what people perceive as the high cost when in reality uh, exactly that the cost is not lower and I really liked how you uh, one of the earlier uh, points you raised in in our conversation was uh, just the operating cost of a coal-fired power plant can be higher than the, than the running cost of, of another renewable energy source. So um, to, to, to bring this around and to uh, begin to conclude here, um, uh, let's hear, uh, I, I, I guess what, uh, my question, and I want to return back to the, to the model with the 2030 remap and the 2030 reference one, what is the big difference between those? Uh, there's kind of an uh, increase in each category, but is there a way to describe um, in one or two points, maybe let's say two or three points, uh, the big difference between what's kind of expected and what really can happen? Yeah, um, I think the, uh, we, we describe this in the report. There's, there's, we describe three pillars for this transition, which are the, the, the key ways to, to, to deliver on this. The, the first one is to uh, deploy massively renewables in the power sector. As we said, the, the potential for them in the region is uh, very large. Uh, so just to give you a sense of the scale, 
um, and I'm quoting here from memory, I think it's 265 gigawatts of total installed capacity today of non-renewables and renewables versus a very conservative estimation of potential of 1300 gigawatts of potential of renewables. Uh, and again, this is a conservative estimation. So the potential is there and the cost reductions are also there. So we think that uh, solar and wind will, uh, can and we think will be the core of the power systems of the future, not only in the Southeast Europe, but generally in the world. And furthermore, the, the, the cost reductions that we have seen still have a lot of room to continue. So, um, yeah, for that reason, I think the, 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 the say the first step is to uh, have a, a power system that is um, mostly relying on renewables. Then the power system is only a fifth of the energy system. So we, we spend, it, it follows the perfect Pareto rule because we spend 80% of the time talking about it, but it's 20% of the energy consumption. So the rest is heat and transport. And the formula from our perspective to, to deal with heat and transport is to, uh, in the first instance, electrify heat and transport. And the reason for that is because, but well, there's several reasons. Let's say the, the first reason is that uh, electric transport and electric uh, low temperature heating are substantially more efficient than fossil-based heating. So if you look at an electric vehicle, it can deliver the same transport service than a diesel car. Uh, for uh, using three to four times less energy. And the same goes for a heat pump. A heat pump can deliver low temperature heat using a third or a quarter of the energy that a boiler uses. So that's primarily why electrification makes sense. Then electrification brings other benefits. So for instance, uh, decarbonizing fuels is difficult. Decarbonizing power, as we just said, is much easier. So that facilitates the transition overall. It removes the air pollution locally. So when you electrify, you don't have pollution locally. Of course, if you still have coal plants in the background, you still have pollution, but it's not localized in cities. And that's also another area to take into account. And then also electrification brings another benefit, which is if you increase the consumption of electricity with heat pumps and with electric vehicles, you're sending an investment signal to the power sector to invest in more solar and more, and more wind. And conversely, solar and wind need flexible demands to operate and to facilitate the integration of the reliability of solar and wind. And this additional demand of heat pumps and electric vehicles, if it's managed flexibly, can help that integration. So it creates positive synergies between one sector and the other. And then I would say the third pillar is bioenergy because electrification does not reach all the applications. So there's applications that will not be possible to electrify and there, uh, bioenergy can, can provide a solution. So for instance, uh, biofuels in the case of the stock of vehicles that we will have still for decades that uh, will not be electrified. Uh, and uh, for applications like domestic shipping, uh, domestic aviation, this type of applications, then bioenergy is, is uh, the third pillar. So those are, uh, in our view, the, the, the key strategic areas to work on. I, I really like how you brought that out. Uh, that okay, Vavra has a question, but just uh, I, I just wanted to follow up that. Uh, so twenty percent of the of our discussion or the even the generation is around generation or twenty. I, I'm, I'm flubbing that up. So so, but the biggest savings then are in transportation, or the biggest differences that can be made are in transportation and heating. That's the eighty percent. Is that right? 
Uh, you can also make big di difference in the power sector because the, uh, the power sector disproportionately also has higher emissions, so particularly if you rely on coal. Mm -hmm. But uh, typically we forget to talk, we, when we talk about energy, we, we are talking about power in many cases, and it's not. Uh, power is just a fifth of our consumption. Mm -hmm. And so es essentially, uh, I, I would say if we think about heating, because it's um, very, very decentralized, right? Like a water heater or a fireplace. Uh, and then the, the new scenario, well, I guess would a, a heat pump would be also decentralized as, as well. But maybe in large cities, you could have a centralized district heating plant that would be much more efficient than all these boilers in, in different residences. So by, by shifting different technologies, different networks. It's a difficult trade-off. It's not a, a black and white discussion because um, once you have a district heating system, it makes sense to make it renewable. But in reality, we should aim to, for buildings that consume very little energy. And then if you really have buildings that consume close to zero energy, as the European regulations are pointed towards, then uh, investing in district heating systems, that doesn't make so much sense. So it's a uh -huh. difficult balance to strike. But uh, generally, if you already have a district heating system, it makes sense to, to turn it into a renewable space system. Okay, so all these decisions have to be quite localized, for example, like... Uh... Yeah, I, I guess in maybe an aging city or a historical district or something, keeping the district heating system going is, is good, but new builds definitely yeah. should be zero or not, what, not positive or not, not, not negative, whatever it is, uh, on, on energy consumption for the buildings. Uh, Vavra, your, your, your question. Yeah, it's just uh, the question of, uh, we discussed how different potential for renewables is across the region. And also, it's very interesting how you included the both uh, EU and non-EU countries into analysis. So I was just thinking out, uh, where do you see the potential for cooperation? And I mean, mostly in technical level between the, these countries, you know, the, the variety of potential they have, but also the, the opportunity for them to work together on, on renewables deployment. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to address that one? Yeah, I, I think it's particularly important for the power sector uh, because wind and solar, is, is the, the, the generation patterns are, are quite variable. So, uh, and co uh, cooperation in terms of regional integration of, of these generation sources will, will be key, mainly because they're location dependent. So you need to build where the resource is to an extent. Um, and then that necess necessitates uh, network expansion to bring them to the demand centers so so that they can meet the electricity demand but uh, but secondly uh, i think the key reason is that if any country tries to go it alone and integrate these sources they have to deal with all that variability all in terms of their national generation uh, on their own and it's much more difficult to do it because over a wider region this this variability is averaged out so you're dealing with a much lower level of variability at a, at a regional level and that allows you to share different flexibility resources uh, much less wasted energy or curtailment uh, sharing of renewables that have plummeted in cost and just going it alone uh, or, or in a less cooperative way uh, is actually more challenged more technically challenging first of all uh, and then it's all, it's also more expensive. Um, but also actually in terms of the actual penetrations we're looking at in terms of wind and solar out to 2030 in the remap case is, uh, is, is around 
29-30% of, of generation. Um, and this, this has been done um, before in, in countries that are much more uh, electrically isolated than the CSEC region. So it, it's very technically possible, challenging, of course, but, it, but it, it's very much possible and cooperation will make it much more effective and, and achievable, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. I think that's where we'll end is, is on a very positive note about the, 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 not just the need, but the, the great, uh, I think it would say challenge too of cooperation and, and I, the, I, the idea that, uh, uh, one country, especially a small country can't be so energy independent. Uh, even, even in Germany, you probably know this more, more than me, right? They, they send their electricity all over the place through, through Poland, for example, right? Because they have so much of it, but, but it's this, uh, regional and even continental integration that's, that's necessary for, for renewables to really, I don't say it's just dependent on it, but, but it's important to, to make it a much more dramatically different, right? Because this is kind of, the criticism against renewables is, oh, no, we need to have coal or gas as the base load, and this is how it's going to work. And, and mm-hmm. you know, renewables is just kind of something on the side there. But really for the whole system, the whole system can operate, just it has to be integrated in a much, in a much larger geographic scale. So, yeah. great. Okay, uh, Luis and Sean, I, I want to thank you so much, and Vavra, for, for joining us today. This was an absolutely great discussion and I know we will definitely have a link uh, to the report uh, in, in the notes for the, for the show. So I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks thank for having us. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thank you for listening to the My Energy 2050 podcast. We hope this episode was useful to understand the potential changes in the Southeast energy system and what it can be. I would like to ask that you share this episode on social media with a line of what was most revealing to you. This helps our audience grow and also helps us understand what future topics we should include. And thank you again for listening to the My Energy 2050 podcast.